Brothers and sisters, friends and comrades, this is the PRC Show. I am your host, Paul Cooley, and thank you for listening. Readers and listeners, this is Reading Parting the Waters, episode 009. We are almost in double digits. I'm very excited about that. This is a show is going on strong. We're getting more listeners every day. People from all over the globe are listening to the show and commenting and writing me letters of critique and the last one is for this is a new one from phyllis in columbus indiana and she says stop complaining about branch from my understanding this book is 900 pages but i failed at math so i'm not sure how long that really is anyways do you want the book to be 2,000 pages what is wrong with you i'm tired of you saying branch should have included that and he didn't include this and he didn't talk more about this person by the way i really like gabe is he single and can you give him my email? No, Phyllis, but I appreciate uh, what you are bringing to my attention. And I have been a little harsh on Branch lately. Um, and, uh, you know, I want the book to be perfect. And every, you know, it's not. It doesn't have everything in there. Any comments on what uh, uh, Phyllis from Columbus, Indiana said? I mean, I just love to hear this insightful uh, voice from Southern Indiana. <laughs> I would say South Central Indiana, to be more specific. And uh, I appreciate her taste in men. What can I say? Of course. I'm not going to give her, her your email. Anyways, yeah. this is chapter 11. Already taken, Phyllis. Sorry. Yes, he is. Um, chapter 11, Baptism on Wheels. Uh, this is a very exciting chapter. I can't believe this hasn't been made into a movie already. I think it has been. I don't know. There might be if some. If this was a movie, I would have a hard time watching many it's, of the scenes in it. Yeah, it's um, it's like a Marvel. It's horrible. There's a lot of violence in this one. So in this chapter, we are going to learn. I have to be funny because I, tr- I got to keep it lively. It's, it's dark. It's heavy stuff. Um, but <laughs> I found this funny. Who used the excuse that he had to help a friend move furniture to avoid a major civil rights action? That is not a high point in this particular person's No, career. no. And I'm right. sorry to make fun, but it was funny. Okay. This is also a chapter without Martin Luther King, if that's even possible. American the King years, but that's fine. I mean, there's a lot going on. It It reminds us that history is made by people on the ground in all kinds of places. And of course, King is going to have to respond to this as a leader, even though he didn't make it happen. Which I think is a major strength to lift up Taylor Branch of this book, that he's going into this important event. I actually didn't get this far in the David Garrow book, so I'm not sure how he handled the uh, um, Freedom Rides. He probably did it very concisely and easily to read, but not as thorough. But, Br- and he- but Branch is talking about the King years, right? Fair point. Not, not King the man. Um, what city was the worst hospital in the world to go to at this time if you were in uh, beat up at a civil rights <laughs> action? M- might have been more than one. Um, and was there a conspiracy by a local government, the Ku Klux Klan, to beat up civil rights activists for 15 minutes? You're going to learn the answer to that. And I'm... Th- I think you already know the answer. Um, oh, this is one of my fi- my favorite little asides. What does J- what does Japan think? What do we know? If some people in Japan think of white supremacy violence. <laughs> um, and what? Mo- oh, this will be a good one for Gabe. He can think about this. I'm glad you picked up on the Japanese uh, uh, subplot because when when we get to that, I want to I want to uh, rant about that for a second. It's one of my favorite scenes. Like I laughed. I just I loved it. Uh, we'll get to that. In a, we'll get to it. But actually, let me pause on that for a second, because it's going to show humanity a little bit. It's going to say, this isn't right. <laughs> uh, that's the way I read it. We'll get we'll All get right. to it. OK, right. um, I'll, what I'll store up my rage, store up your rage. OK, 
what minor character could I easily see myself being and this is the person I would like to be? Gabe probably has no idea. But when I was reading this, I love these activists. I love the 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 courage they're taking and you're going to find out the violence they're going to face and i in my mind i mean i would love to be them i couldn't i just know i don't have it in me but there are people that play a role that help and i feel like that would be something i could do and i could see myself doing it and it would be a very fulfilling thing anyways um today this show is going to be sponsored by a book that i haven't read i used to do this on my previous show and because i was getting upset with ella baker's being short shrifted in her bio from branch uh, I end up buying a book, and I haven't read it yet. And Gabe, could you just elaborate and say what it is, who wrote it, and all that stuff? Ella Baker and the Black Freedom Movement, A Radical Democratic Vision by Barbara Ransby, published by UNC Chapel Hill. Okay. So uh, I think this book came out in does it, you know, 2003-ish. This, this book was uh, written with the blessing of Ella Baker's family. She got a lot of documents and insight and it took her a really long time uh and i read actually probably like four pages of it just jumped through it and saw some things and it looks like it's pretty well written and she uses branch as a source of course in certain areas and kind of dovetails nicely with what we're talking about and we are on may 1st 1961 john lewis is riding to dc for freedom ride freedom riding training Freedom riding. That's not how you say it. What, what are we talking about again? You're doing fine. Okay. Um, so he's joining James Farmer and 11 other recruits. There were two students in uh, um, in this group. Okay. Rest assured that if you're command of the English language, it leaves us entirely. I will correct you. <laughs> okay, thank I you. will intervene. Thank but you. that was fine. <laughs> yeah. So um, there were two students who were folk singers. There was a core staff. There was a retired Michigan professor and his wife who was a preacher a freelance writer, uh, James Peck. He's also in this group. He is the uh, heir to the Peck and Peck clothing fortune, um, who was silenced in is, uh, in Harvard um, for dancing in 1933 because he arrived with a black woman. Can't do that. Um, he spent three years in prison, actually, for other numerous things that he got arrested for, ignoring laws and social conventions, and that conflicted with his ideals. There was also the square-jawed Albert Bigelow. I wonder if he has any relation to Bigelow Boulevard here in Pittsburgh. A Harvard-trained architect and former Navy captain whose World War II experience had converted him to become an ardent pacifist. You had another little side note on him, didn't you? Nuclear or something? Well, he was such a committed pacifist that he had a boat. <laughs> and this, by the way, is a, it's a, just one of the throwaway sort of sentence clauses in this remarkable book. This man had a boat, which he called the Golden Rule, which he <laughs> sailed into a South Pacific nuclear <laughs> test range to try to stop an atomic bomb test. Yeah. I, I, that, that's a, a level of commitment to pacifism. Which makes one pause. Right. And and me and Gabe were talking off air between commercial breaks here at 91.3 um, about are these people just the greatest heroes and just so courageous or are they crazy? And I think I don't want to dis- dismiss anything. This is crazy. But some of it is like, yikes, this is kind of nuts. And then we have Simeon. Is that how you say his name? Simeon Booker of Jet Magazine. He's actually like a reporter. So, uh 
on the second day, they they get on this freedom ride. They do the training. On the second day, they pass through Farmville of Prince Edward County, home of the Vernon Johns family and the Virginia portion of the Brown case. Um, to avoid compliance with the, so this city, to avoid compliance with integrating uh, um, schools, the county government had. Oh, this is ridiculous. The county government transferred most of the school property to a hastily organized private schools for white children. Nearly all the black kids had gone without school for two years. So this is where the Freedom Riders are passing through. They go to the Trailways bus station without any incident. They also pass through Lynchburg uh, and then to Danville bus station. Officials turn them away. You can't come here, but there was no arrest or no violence. Nothing. You, you bad skipped happened. over the stop in Fredericksburg, which is where part of my family lives in Virginia. Oh, where apparently all that happened was the Freedom Raiders got icy stairs. <laughs> okay, thank you. I made an uh, editorial decision not to include that, but thank you. Oh, that was good. Um, during this time, Kennedy is getting ready to give a civil rights speech. Comparing it to kind of the battle against communism, saying that we need to avoid another Little Rock. And uh, he, he's kind of saying, like, listen, we can't look like Neanderthals. He doesn't say that. But we can't look like we can't have all this like racial violence in the eyes of the world. Like we got to, you know, look like a peace loving free country. Well, th- th- this is where Kennedy goes to these incredible specific lengths that making progress in the field of civil rights will undermine guerrilla warfare uh, by communists against Western allies. Right. It, it's really particular how intent he is on this and how the Kennedys are connecting this progress that they hope to make uh, in the U.S. in civil rights with their anti-communist agenda worldwide. And I think we have to give him credit compared to the last president because he goes and gives this speech in Georgia like saying, listen, I know you guys... Tell, tell it like it is. But I want to say, we have to be for integration and for civil rights. And the crowd is not pleased by this. Like, he goes into hostile territory and they're quiet. So, as much as I'm... I'm critical of the love, the historic love in this country for Kennedy. Like, he's the greatest person of all time. But in this case, like, this is good. This is a good thing he did. He, he also specifically commits to act. And it is interesting how... In again, in, in in organizer parlance, in in the union, we might say he's putting his feet in cement, right? Once you make a public commitment in an audience in the South that we're going to take action to enforce federal law, obviously he's already the attorney general, right? But he's putting himself, his department, the administration, his brother on the record as saying we're going to we're we're not going to do what Eisenhower did, and in fact, John F. Kennedy criticized Eisenhower. During the campaign against Nixon. Wait a second. This isn't Robert F. Kennedy, the speech in Georgia? Yes. Okay, go ahead. Robert sorry. F. Kennedy is echoing what John F. Oh. Kennedy said during the campaign. Okay, thank you. Right? Sorry, sorry. John F. Kennedy during the campaign against Nixon said, well, Nixon, you know, but, and, oh, right, right, right. as part of, part of the previous Republican administration, they, they didn't take action, mm-hmm. right? Uh, they didn't take adequate action. And we are going to, we're going to act. Right. On May 12th, they went to Rock Hill, South Carolina. Does anybody remember Rock Hill from the last episode? The Jalen's inspired people to go there from Nashville. Uh, legendary among SNCC students. John Lewis was the first one out of the bus. He noticed that, you know, the usual tensions 
they seem to coil rather than abate. And the terminal, this was like a more of a kind of fun hangout for young people, young white people that commit violence with, uh, with pinball with, machines, with, with duck back hairdos, dare <laughs> yeah. we say, um, hoodlums. They, they, uh, so they get in there. One of these young white guys is leaning on the side of the door. There's about 20 people behind them. Uh, Lewis kind of steps in front of Lewis, blocks the entrance. And one of the guys says, uh, jerks his thumb and says, um, colored entrance over there, or whatever he says. And Lewis drew up his like standard speech, like, listen, I have a right to be here on grounds of the Supreme Court decision in the Boynton case. This is interstate travel is to be desegregated. There was a a pause, and forgive children, I'm going to swear here, uh, don't forgive children. (laughs) That's the way I talk. Forgive your children for being uh, brats, whatever. Forgive me, I'm going to swear. So the kid says uh, to Lewis, um, you can shit on that. And then he shoves Lewis back, back and forth in the doorway. Lewis is punched um, right in the face. He's bleeding, and... He sinks to the ground. More white people surge forward. There's like these primitive sounds of violence. Albert Bigelow is next in line. Lewis uh, gets stepped on. His body between... So he, he steps in, fo- in front of Lewis, but then between Lewis, there's like this kicking going on. Bigelow's erect posture had determined... Oh, let me read this again. Bigelow's erect... This is how Branch writes it. Bigelow's erect... erect posture and determined passivity such as an alien sight and a fist fight did not keep the attackers from daring to strike on him like his head and his body let me pause there so we can untangle the mess of what i just said lewis is getting the crap kicked out of him albert bigelow goes in not to punch and defend his friend but essentially to take the blows and try to protect him. This is a big, strong guy, a military man, and he's like practicing this still non-violence. I'm going to start crying because this is so remarkable. You're going to see this many times. He's like, no. So he's getting punched, and these pieces of crap are just like continuing to do it. Um, again, are we from the same species? Three or four thudding blows drop to Bigelow. He's on one knee. The attackers lunge towards Bigelow. He gets knocked. Then Genevieve Hughes... Now, forgive me. Is she white or black? Because there is. Anyways, she uh, gets in line. She gets assaulted. Finally, police shoot out and to try to like, or they come in. They they hear all this. Um, and um, in the spirit of nonviolence, you know, they're continuing to try to not do any sort of action. Um, let me hold on. I got to go back to my. Oh, Okay. I gotta clean this up. So this police officer, who actually sounds sounds like a decent human being, he breaks this up, and then he's like, "Listen, do you want me to press charges against these white thugs?" Basically, he didn't say thugs. I don't know what he says. Uh, and in the spirit of nonviolence, uh, Lewis probably hoods hoodlums. He probably would have called them hoodlums. Lewis and Bigelow is like, "No, we're." We're here in the spirit of nonviolent resistance, and we do not want to prosecute. And this like upsets the police guy because he's like, "I just went on a limb. I just went out. I just like kind of took a risk here to like defend you, and now you know uh, this is going to waste." 
<sighs> Anyways, yeah. I got to take a pause there because uh, there are a couple things that that pile up for me there. One is there's this aspect of violence that seems to feed on itself and kind of multiply quickly in a group that is worth keeping an eye on. There's it, it gets worse and worse as this chapter progresses, but there's some. I don't know how to say this. Like mob mentality. Sure. What they it's, say, what, it, what does it, that mean? It's like a kind of sociological, almost biological factor that it, it seems to start multiplying almost exponentially. Yes. And that is really troubling. Because, That's a good way of putting it. Because it, um, the idea of turning the other cheek, that somehow nonviolent witness will, um, will overcome violence, that may be true in a broad political sense. It doesn't seem to be true in the particular moment of violence, because violence doesn't seem to be uh, dissuaded by the turn cheek. It just seems like violence wants to just break the, the, the turn cheek with, the, a, with a brick. And when they see the turn cheek, it makes them more violent because it's like, you're weak, I will hit you or something. I don't know. It's crazy. It, it's something really disturbing that uh, I have not been in that many physical confrontations and, and nothing quite like this with uh, a whole group of people who are psyching themselves up. It's really frightening. Um, the placement is interesting because he seems like just an individual person yes. wearing a badge who thinks that the right thing to do is stop people using violence because the state has a monopoly on violence which is what you would ideally, if you're going to have policemen, this is what you would want policemen to do. But he, and he, he, as an individual, is disappointed and frustrated and hurt, and maybe feels isolated because he can't actually carry yeah. through on his duty. Yeah, I think sort Bran- of a human moment. I apologize for reading that, but I uh, that's a good job of summing it up. And Branch does a really good job of writing that. So then they go to uh, f- uh, junior college, Friendship Junior College. After this. They're celebrated. Lewis gets a message that he's a finalist for the Friends Service Committee to win a trip to India for two years to live and work. Um, and he's torn. He's like, oh, I should stay here. Um, but they're like, no, 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 just just go. Like, you should go there. Um, it, it, to me, and he does. He ends up, like, leaving. He gets on a bus, and he goes to Philadelphia. He's going to join up later. I remember when out. I was reading this thinking, this is going to drive Paul around the bed. Oh, my God. It Yes, it, you're absolutely right, because it's like, you don't need you should be teaching the classes on nonviolence. This is ridiculous that you should be going to India for two years when like you are at the point of conflict and everything that's going on here. You are the movement's head. You are the leader. Anyways. All right. C- counterpoint. That someone from a uh a poor black farming family would get the opportunity to have <laughs> this level of leadership development is a fantastic thing. The timing is not great. Well, and also, I have the hindsight of 2020, knowing what's going on. Like, in 1961, you know, who knows where the world's going. Aniston. But again, the fascination with India. Yeah, the India thing, yeah. Go on. I'd like some Indian food right now. Um, Aniston. So, Greyhound uh, drivers are warned up ahead. So, they're, they're heading to Aniston, which is in Alabama. Um. Remember that Tom Gaither predicted trouble in Aniston, uh, Slippy Rock Professor. <laughs> so they go, they go into the, the terminal there, and they see signs are like newly painted that says, Interstate passengers, white interstate passengers go to this bathroom, black interstate passengers go to this one. And no, wait, Pause, because this is actually where the pronunciation is really important. Negro interstate passengers. No, 
intrastate. So what they've done is that they've painted the signs to suggest that the segregation is in reference to people taking buses within the state. Intrastate means within oh, the state. Oh, so they did it. Okay, I see what you As mean. As opposed to interstate, which is between states, which is the jurisdiction uh, where the Supreme Court's ruling is. They're they're trying to get right up to the line. They're trying to get exactly. Instead, someone is, someone so, is being cute about the law here. I thought they were actually being like instead of giving the middle finger, which is that that's what I read that as. Well, they are. They're, but, but they're but they're doing it in a way that's like legal. There, the, the, some someone is. It's not really clear why, but somebody is trying to be clever about the law here. Yeah, I thought they were saying like we're not going to follow the law, intra and inter. Very good point. I actually wrote down inter. I don't know. So um, okay. So the Supreme Court did ban like segregation in these facilities. Well, as we're about to see, they're not going to welcome with open arms and have a legal debate. Uh, no. no, right, or have a legal debate. You know. Uh, uh, multiracial inter interstate travelers either, but someone has has thought to do this. There was a large crowd of men bearing clubs, uh, bats, iron pipes, and knives. The nine Freedom Riders now and five regular passengers sat frozen in their seats as the mob shouted for the Freedom Riders to come out. Okay, this is like... Can you imagine this mob? Like, I wish there was more history on the mob and who these people were. Um, I don't think we ever learn this. I mean, there are obviously a lot of clan people, um, but th you know, these this is th there's this loud, raucous crowd, and they're in this bus. I can't imagine being in the bus. I would be, I have a easily I flinch easily. I have a low pain tolerance. This would freak me out. So someone tries to force open the door. This brought an Alabama state investigator out from undercover. He ran to the front front of the the bus, um, and he. Braces himself. Does he get on the bus? Um, he's he's riding the bus. Yeah, he's on the bus. Uh, then the mob is like surrounding the bus, slashing the tires, supposedly, which we find that they d does banging it with just, pops. Just a freeze frame on that moment. The, so the state has sent these investigators, maybe they're undercover state police, let's say, to ride the bus to spy on what's happening and keep an eye on it. Suddenly, in this instant. This undercover state trooper, whatever he is, this investigator, is now on the receiving end of the violence of white supremacist violence. Yeah, he's like, I got to save my. I'm here to save the the freedom riders. They're like, I got to save myself. I'm going to hold the door shut. So he's holding the door shut. Um, inside the bus, <clears throat> they were like, we need to get out of here. And the driver did not argue. He revved the engine back up, and the they're getting the heck out of Aniston. So. They're on the move. There's a crowd following them out of town. Um, they're driving at a high speed down Highway 78. There's like 50 cars, probably 200 men. Not far outside, the bus starts to like turn towards the left or whatever, one side. A driver realizes, uh-oh, one of these tires is slashed and we're not. We're going to be flat. Like this is going to not go well. Helpless, he pulled the bus off the highway. <laughs> Oh my God. He turns the engine off and he scampers off into the countryside. Well, he's, it's not exactly the ship going, the captain going down with the ship. It's not the same thing for their bus driver. And he certainly wasn't going to take that, that approach. Um, right. There are a number of times where the individual bus drivers 
do not cover themselves with glory in this no, story. They do not. On the other hand, <laughs> I would have done what he did. I mean, they no. they did not sign up for any part of this story. They did not. So imagine this, guys. You are in the deep south. You're on an integrated bus. You are the bus isn't moving, and you have like two hundred, essentially Klansmen, angry white young people probably without children who knows they have they don't care they're raging so the sound of slamming doors and shouts from this posse are like being amplified this time the mob starts using bricks heavy axes to smash the windows sending shards of glass uh, flying into the passengers uh they attack they open up like the luggage compartment below they start ripping things out um, using the luggage to try to force open the door. Finally, someone throws a firebomb through the gaping hole in a back window. Um, and this the place starts to fill with uh, black, acrid smoke. The The passengers realize that like the fire cannot be contained and they have to get out. Now the mob's trying to keep them inside. So the, the state investigator is still inside. The, he whips out his revolver and, God, thank God, kind of he was in there because who knows what would have happened. They actually get out. Um, he gets the door open, Albert Bigelow and others leave, like everyone's getting out, they're kind of off in a frenzy. Um, there's the investigator, I guess his name is Collins, he's kind of like waving his gun trying to get people out. Um, and then, is that where the violence ends? Hold on, no. Uh, Henry Thomas, an SNC student from Howard, is felled by a blow to the head. Others tumble behind him. Alabama straight troopers start firing some warning shots. I guess they're now on the scene. The mob retreats in their car, and troopers eventually ferry the people back to Anniston Hospital. And this bus is going up in a rage of flames. Um, the, the, the photograph ends up making national and international wires, like it gets distributed around the world. Um... So, that is not how this the Freedom Ride was supposed to go. <laughs> right. I mean, without making a comment on the particular merits of nonviolence, it seems to just sort of tactically in the situation, if the undercover, formerly undercover state investigator hadn't used his gun to force open the door, some or all of the people would have died on the bus. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, they're in Aniston... Now, there's a second bus that's an hour later, um, and they get wind at one of the stops that there was a race riot. Um, so they, do they go into Anniston? Yeah, I think that, so they're in Anniston. Um, and, the, uh, and I have to pause here because this is the word that they use, and you're quoting it, not inaccurately, but the word race riot Oh, it's so incorrect. As it was a way to describe what's happening here, um, you know, race riot makes it sound like two races are showing up and they're like having a, a fair fight or something. That's not what this. That term is not what's this, happening. It's not what this term has ever meant in American history. No, uh, but it is the term that was used, and everybody knows what it means, right? Yeah, it's it's when white people in this situation, well, it's white people attacking these peaceful civil rights activists. So the second bus, they're traveling to Aniston, and they they did get word that there was like this event that occurred. Uh, and one of the Freedom Riders gets 
punched in the face by um, a white guy because he's sitting uh, supposedly where he shouldn't be sitting. Um, and two students start kicking, uh, who is it? Herbert Harris in this little confined space. Um, and then Walter Bergman, the tired, the retired professor from Michigan jumps over the seats to try to like stop this assaulting. Then another white guy turns, um, to two of the freedom riders and knocks him back in his seat, punches him in the face. And then there's another, uh, what happens here? There's just like a lot of bloodiness going on within this bus. Another guy's being stomped on his chest. Um, there's a Mrs. Bergman is saying like, listen, can you please stop assaulting? That's my husband, which kind of makes things worse for her husband because she is white and he is black. And then they call her a N-word lover. The fighting finally dies down um, because a policeman kind of like, okay, let's, that's enough of this. And also they essentially got segregation enforced on that particular ride. So you have this bus of bloodied, beaten down uh, Freedom Riders that's now heading into Aniston, where basically, I don't know, an hour or so beforehand, a bus was burned. Okay, so not going well, obviously. So then we have this, and help me, Gabe, tease this out. So we have uh, the FBI is kind of not exactly... No, the FBI is working with the Klan. No. The detective Tom Cook is working with the Klan. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so the FBI is secretly there. They learn that the Klan is involved, but do nothing. Is that the better way to put it? So the the FBI agent in this situation, I think what he's trying to do, he's trying to create a situation in which the city will respond. But the, his problem is, is that the agency that, you would normally expect to do something, which is the police department, is, is itself corrupt, yeah, or collaborating with the Klan and infiltrated by the Klan. So he knows he's got to report to Washington that the man who picks up the phone at the police department to talk to him, he knows because he's an FBI agent, right. is also a Klansman. Right, yeah. So the FBI is not necessarily the bad guy here, but they, like you said, they're kind of their hands are tied. Although maybe not, you could there could have been different actions taken. Anyways, Bull Connor is like the chief of police. They called it something else. What is he called? Uh, the he's like the uh, well. Well, hang on a second. I mean, we'll we'll see in this chapter how how much it takes, and 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 all of the the politics behind the federal government intervening in in local or state affairs. Yeah. Right. And so. The, and look, the FBI's normal job is not to prevent street violence in a sure. small town or right. whatever, in a city in, in in the South or anywhere for that matter, right? They have a very particular role. So they are supposed to work with law enforcement, right? Yeah. So the FBI agent is trying to do his job as he understands it, as he's been directed to. It just, he happens to know he's working with people who are not only racist, not only collaborating Sympathetic to with, with, with fascists, but one yeah. of them actually is a fascist infiltrator into the police department. And it's like so well known that they are horrible that um, Bull Connor, who's the head of public safety, his own pastor, Pastor John Rutland, begged him not to let kids get beat up. 
uh, Mr. Connor, please don't let kids get beat up today on the buses today. And he's just like, yeah, whatever, it's happening. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> like, so his det- so this detective Klansman Cook told reporters right before the bus arrives that, um, yeah, uh, this bus is coming in. They're rabble rousers, and um, then he just like walks off. And the reporters are like baffled by this like retreat. Like, wait, isn't he supposed to be here to protect them from like the 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 posse of people that are going to beat beat them up? So they get to the trailways terminal, and uh, there's Branch doesn't use really the word clan. He just says mob. Freedom Riders get there. They have some hesitancy, of course, and they walk into the corridor brimming with these uh, Klansmen mob reporters and witnesses. Um, are transfixed by this premonition of, uh, you know, clansmen, the, the, the people um, with their, like, bats and things like that. Um, this woman, Pearson, because she must have been hurt, uh, they think that she, she's one of the Freedom Riders. She gets off the bus and they think that like she was attacked by black people, which she finds out they find that no, she wasn't. This upsets them. Okay, Pearson, one of the Freedom Riders, gets punched in the face. Uh, her bl- her mouth is bloody, and then she gets hit again. Uh, no, he, sorry. He gets he falls back into the arms of a Klansman, who then holds him and receives blow after blow until he falls to his knees. Um, the pack moves to, you know, help him. He's More assault occurs. Um... Essentially, a lot of these people are getting like two and three people are holding them and they're just getting like sticks and pipes and stuff like that while bystanders just like kind of look on. Uh, they, get, they go into this area that's blocked by Klansmen. What, reporter um, Simon Booker looks into the terminal and sees like Walter Benjamin or Walter Bergman on his hands and knees crawling desperately on his legs while men are beating uh, beating him. Um, uh this reporter actually had a newspaper. She punched two holes in it and like got the heck out of there. Used that as a way to try to like escape. Um, he was able to get out and by, with a cab and go to Fred Shuttleworth's house. Uh, the violence was not spared only for the Freedom Riders though, because there was like a white guy in the bathroom that just like pops out. All of a sudden, they start beating on him. Um, and then there was like bystanders heard as well as news people like a cameraman his his car is smashed his camera is smashed and dragged um the microphone is ripped out of somebody's hand and did i mention the beating by local police in the clan yes i did um and this was all organized as like a 15 minute you guys can beat on them and then it, it's got to stop and then they kind of come in um and end this this episode of beating I don't like how this turned out. Um, so they all head back to... Well, so there's people that are unconscious. They head to the hospital. And then there's some that go to uh, the Fred Shuttleworth's house. Um, but when they're there at this hospital, a lot of the mob is surrounding the hospital. And the people at the hospital are like, we don't want you here. This is causing problems for us. You need to leave. So they're kind of jumping from hospital, like to, from wing to wing. Just in case anyone thought we were picking on uh, bus drivers, healthcare workers are also not yeah. uh, exactly <laughs> not uh, exactly. turning out to be the heroes in this story. Um, and then 
the hospital carrying Jim Peck was turned away from Caraway Methodist Hospital, so he had to go to Hillman Hospital. I'm not sure what the difference with these two are. He ends up getting 53 stitches, uh, a big four-inch laceration to his head. And what does he tell reporters? He's like, yeah, this is really tough, but I'll be back on that bus tomorrow headed to Montgomery. <laughs> um, I mean, this was, like, disturbing to read, and it's also, like, who the heck are these people? Like you kind of said earlier, like violence just starts to occur and it just, it's infectious or something. And, and, and it's like, what is going on? I mean, Branch has made a decision not to focus a lot of attention on the Ku Klux Klan as an organization. I mean, he mentions that clearly the Klan is playing an organizing role and that there's this relationship between, you know, based on the FBI's information there's a relationship between the, the police department talking to the Klan and individual policemen who are also Klan members. Yes. Right? But so you have a avowedly white supremacist organization taking action, using violence, um, mobilizing men. But there's also this dynamic, it seems, of somehow just embodying uh, an inaction white supremacy which combined with the this this escalating aspect of physical violence draws in people who were probably not dues paying sworn in clans I think that's exactly right and I, this actually reminds me of a, a little personal story here so when I was like 16 I worked at a um, restaurant in the north side and this was in the mid 90s there was a clan rally downtown Pittsburgh it was very strange because it was like not of the time it was like the clan um, just speaking out against there was some police brutality and I think they just wanted to be like well we're for p- police brutality we don't like the I don't know what the reason was anyways there were people at my white public school that were I would say soft racists. <laughs> um, when you're in an all-white school and you're not really that political, they would just say things. It was like, oh god, they were into like the Confederate flag and things like that. And these were friends of mine, but it wasn't really like a it wasn't a big part of their identity. There was a Klan rally, and there was like a peace march that was going to be at the same time to say like work for peace and racial justice. And I had a group of friends that went to this just to see as spectators. They wanted to see it and see, oh, what's this about? This is kind of cool. This is interesting. Not like they were going to be for the Klan or for the peace, but they were just kind of seeing it. And when I read about this, I think of like the knuckleheads that I went to high school with 40 years prior. I can see some of those guys just kind of jumping in and saying like, yeah, get out of our town and kind of just letting their emotions and their um, views of people saying the way they do things is wrong get the best of them and just start participating. Right. And so I actually kind of like how he doesn't say it's the Klan. And I, I'm at a loss for words just because I don't know what to call them a mob. But it is yeah. just like regular Joes, and, and I then, think. And then add on top of that the dynamic in this time and place, which is different from your experience when you were a young person in Pittsburgh, right? So in this time and place, the Klan can accurately say it exists and it's taking action, obviously outside the law, but it's taking action in alignment with 
power in society. It's defending the majority. It's defending the norms of the society. And by God, the police department, the organized state is collaborating quietly with it. It makes it so much easier. All the forces are to say, this is the right thing to do. My uncle's a Klansman. We're doing this where, you know, my friends all knew that the Klan was wrong and the police were there to sort of protect the Klan in a way to have this like weird little 30 person march. Um, But I like the way he he talks about who those individuals kind of. Well, right. And, and, And this is where I think. People like Connor and then Patterson, who comes up later in in the chapter, I think in Montgomery, right? These the, these police officials show themselves to be really the worst kind of uh, fascist political corruption that you can have, oh, have in this society, yes. right? Because they're speaking in public about law and order. They're speaking in public about upholding the law. And enforcing the um, the way society should be organized, but in fact they're organizing dereliction of duty. Yep, uh, and and they're selecting um, a target for uh, vigilante violence. Oh, of course, yes. In Nashville, Bevel presides over a Sunday picnic celebration. Some good things going on. They feel like they're having some movie theater success, or they, they've got some a victory campaign. But then Diane Nash hears some news of this bus burning and wants to have an emergency meeting. Bevel is like, no, come on. And then Nash, my favorite, is so insistent, like, listen, we have to address this. Things going on in this things are going on. So Bevel finally says, Okay, fine. We, they go to First Baptist Church, they have this meeting. John She Lu- spoils the picnic. She spoils the piss in the picnic. Like, we gotta get back to fighting um, and organizing. And John Lewis just got back from Philadelphia. Um, reports come in that so that they have this like marathon meeting it sounds like the way branch writes like more than i want to say 24 hours but is it it used to be jail not bail and now the thing is it death instead of jail are we giving our lives for this like wait a second this was this isn't how it's supposed to happen um and so they're really torn on what to do they're discussing discussing this um there's a comment from Bull Connor back to Montgomery. He's like, I spent 20 years of the 20 years of my life with these old tellers meddling in, and I always told them there's going to be bloodshed if they came into our uh, into our area. And it's like bloodshed because of you. They're not causing the okay. And it happened. Right. This this bloodshed organized by you, organized by you. Um, and then he says, this happened on Sunday on Mother's Day when we try to let off as many of our policemen as possible so they can spend Mother's Day at homes with their families. Right. Creating an excuse for himself oh. not to have enforced the law uh, because Such a disgusting. because it Mother's Day, what, what, the, just the worst human, worst human being. I've always hated the worst him. public so, official. I I gotta say, I remember learning about him in high school and ha- and hating it. Like he's like the one civil rights person I know. I think I've come to learn there's probably people worse, maybe, or he's one of the worst. Um, he's right up there for sure. Um, can we get to the real quick little side Tokyo thing to take some? Please. Okay. I want to rant about this. Okay, good. Because so this makes international news. Okay. The bus burning. Um, it's a great photograph, which, by the way, the reporter to our, our journalist friends was smart enough to pull the film out of his camera before he got like beaten up and the camera destroyed, which it was. So in Tokyo, this guy, Sidney Smyre. He's the incoming president of the Birmingham Chamber of Commerce, not a 
somebody that you would think would be a, a cheerleader for civil rights or anything like that. So he's in Japan. He can't read Japanese, but he recognizes the photo, the ugly photos of the bus station and the bus. And as a result, Smyre found himself the object of, as Branch says, cold stares and a lot of questions from his Japanese host. And that this um, basically caused the international businessmen there lost a lot of interest in the Birmingham's climate for investment. Um, and... I, I love. I find this so fascinating because Branch says Smyre was a stout segregationist. He was a Dixiecrat, but he told his Birmingham colleagues that something must be done about Bull Connor. So this is where the small, quiet voice of Karl Marx and me <laughs> wants to jump up and jump up and down and say, "Here you see the." contradiction between the old-fashioned perhaps outdated uh bourgeoisie system system of repression you know based on an old order is suddenly no longer serving the interests of capital like literally the new president of the organized chamber of commerce is in japan thinking to himself we got to do something about <laughs> right. these bumpkins yes and this yeah. uh, rough around the edges uh police uh official we have who don't understand that taking 15 minutes aside to knock people's teeth out and hit them on the head with iron pipes or try to burn them alive in buses uh, is bad for the investment environment. <laughs> right. And uh, look, lads, I get it. I also am white supremacist. Right. But come on now. Yeah. No, I, I guess that's why I love the fact that he was shamed over there because when he's yeah you're you're 100% right i love that little what you said there because he's not doing this because he is like this looks bad on our this we look bad like it's it's a vexing investment like i i hate I, i'm not into black people either but this is bad for us um Thank you, thank you, Japanese folks over there for shaming him. Thank you, Japanese businessmen, for <laughs> correctly assessing that it is bad for the development of capitalism. <laughs> right. to have flaming buses <laughs> yes. and rioting police officers standing by picking their teeth while uh, Klansmen are beating the brains out of people. Yes, unbelievable. Kennedy's in a bind here because he's like, "Oh, what am I supposed to do?" He gets on the phone with Fred Shuttlesworth and says, um, "Hey, listen." I got. I, I know uh, Bull Connor. He's going to escort those people to the, <laughs> the city line. Shuds, Shuttlesworth is like, wait a second. He's the guy that allowed the bus burning, and he's also the guy that allowed them to get the, the crap beat out of them. Kennedy's like, okay, understood. Let me call you back. So he gets on the phone with Governor Patterson. Um, Patterson was is interesting. I hate him. Interesting supporter of Kennedy, uh, but he couldn't be really counted on for civil rights. And there's all this statements in the press that's saying like. Uh, you know, um, that he was refusing to guarantee safe passage. So he clarifies, like, hey, uh, you know, the citizens of the state are, um, you know, uh, w it's, we can't guarantee uh, the protection of these rabble rousers. Like, it's it's not my fault. It's it's they are forcing my hand. To, they're, they're, it's the way they're acting, you know. Right. He, he, he's now in the position that Orville Favis was in. Uh, in exactly. In, in, in Little Rock. He's, he's sort of squirming on the hook. So the plan is to get to the airport for these guys and to fly them to New Orleans. Essentially, through the president's uh, man, Siegenthaler, they are able, there's a lot of back and forth of how this operation is going to take place, but they get, they get to the airport. 
Um, and there's like still they're still worried about mob and violence, but they plan it where the plane's going to take off, leaving at an odd hour. The air, the pilot cannot take any calls or get any communication. Um, they're not to answer the phone. And this crazy scheme um, was able to work and they get out of Montgomery. <laughs> it's sort of <laughs> innovative as a way to deal with the threat of uh, bomb threats being called in, which is just don't answer the phone. Yeah, don't answer the phone. And so they board. <laughs> yeah. Well, there hope, is a bomb. Hope, right. hope there's no bomb. Right. <laughs> um, so they they get the Freedom Riders out safely. And they're in Orleans and case is closed. However, four hours later, I love this. Four hours later, Siegenthaler, like, they just did all this work. So stressful. Oh, poor Siegenthaler. He wakes up in a New Orleans hotel room and says, hey, uh, just I want to let you know, this is Burke Marshall, one of Kennedy's civil rights guys, or he's like the head civil rights guy with Kennedy. Uh, you know Diane Nash? <laughs> um, Siegenthaler is perplexed and outraged because he finds out that, yeah, well, she's got a group of people coming back down, so this is going to happen again. <laughs> That's right. You're from... You're from Nashville, aren't you? Yeah. From that same damn town. Yeah, right. Diane Nash in Nashville, right. she's coming down. Right. So so he's like, my God, you can imagine what's going through his mind. These people just almost got killed. But also, Fred Shuttlesworth is probably a little perplexed. He, you know, he's a great civil rights leader. He's not involved in this Freedom Ride thing. He's just like an anchor on the ground there. And he calls, whoever calls who, calls... um. Uh, Nash and says, hold on a second. Um, Nash is like, you know, we have decided we can't let violence overcome what we are doing here. We're coming into Birmingham to continue the freedom ride. Uh, we're going to come like that's what's happening. And Shuttlesworth says, young lady, do you know that the freedom riders were almost killed here? She says, Yes. Uh, that's exactly why the ride must not be stopped. Um, if they, you know, if they stop us with violence, the movement is dead. We're coming. We just want to know if you can meet us. Of course, he's not going to say no. Right. Um, this is again, why the students are awesome. And really only students in this position can lead something like this. I don't want to say only students, but middle-aged people, they have families. They got a life. They got retirements. <laughs> they got well, it, it, it feels like a callback to the the John Lewis uh, debate with the theologian, where he says, "We're going to march. We're, we're doing it. We're coming. We hope you support us." I mean, only. Uh, but I was thinking, like, only stu. I mean, there are some remarkable people that are like the retired professor and stuff like that. But this takes remarkable courage and also uh, a position in life. And so, always look to the students. So uh, back in Nashville, where are we here? Bevel, who's chairman of the group, uh, is deciding who should go. I don't know why that was like that and it wasn't decided democratically, but he's the guy that decides. Somehow they give him that decision. Um, they decided that Diane Nash actually shouldn't go because she's too valuable as, a, I guess, a spokesperson and a focal person in Nashville. So he chooses six Negro males, two black females, and uh, a white student of each sex, and he himself has some other. Oh yeah, well, I, I'm going to get to that. So he, <laughs> this is so silly. Oh poor, 
Bevel, I'm sorry to make fun of you here. He did not appoint himself. He explained because he had made a commitment to drive to New York to pick up furniture to help a friend set up his house after his upcoming <laughs> wedding. This was the this was precisely the kind of bourgeois attachment of which Nash and others were so scornful. But their disapproval um, did not really reach Bevel. He just, con- this is what I'm doing. I mean, can you blame him? When you know how it is when you get married, you need people to help you move your furniture. Um, well, it, it's it's a nice reminder in a way that these heroic figures astride the crack of history are also humans. They're regular people. have to figure out how to move, move their furniture. Yeah, they're not, they're not like paid. They're, they're all volunteers. Right. Like they're not getting paid to do this. Again, students, so they, you know, what their jobs are. I don't know, working at the uh, Woolworths and stuff, but okay. So on this third Freedom Ride bus leaves Nashville. Some of them actually wrote out wills when they left the um, left the bus and notified their friends and teachers and family. That was a, a, a moment I had to pause. Yeah. That that, that little detail uh, landed for me. Oh my God. It's, 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 this is insane because we're no longer talking about this is why I want to say aggressive nonviolence. We're not talking about withholding your body from getting on a bus or getting um, ice cream dumped on your head. We're talking about dying, you know. Um, so Cillan McCollum, she's the only white female. She actually misses the bus. So she gets on later. So she has like a different ticket entry, which is kind of as important. Um, and then we have Jim... Uh, we have a guy, a white guy named, uh, I forget his name, Jim, Jim Wilkinson. No, not Jim Wilkinson. And then Paul, a black guy, Paul Brooks. They're sitting in the same seg, in a, in the, uh, what they're supposed to be, supposed to be integrated bus. They're obviously violating it. A guy on the bus, um, says, you guys got to separate it. Um, and kind of breaks up the integration aspect of this bus ride. Uh, since McCollin is, not identified as a freedom rider, she gets off the bus at another stop because they weren't letting, why that's important is they weren't letting the freedom riders off. They were kind of being held captive. And there was this odd line between like, are they, is the, there, there's police on board or like marshals or whatever. And it's like, are they there to like preserve the peace or are they there to preserve segregation? Like this is strange. So, McCollin gets off, calls Nash and says, this is weird. Also, we hear there's um, like something's odd about this. Okay, so mm-hmm. so they get to Birmingham, get off the bus. They're waiting in the bus terminal. Um, and there's an angry crowd. Bull Connor's there. He appears and he's, he, and, and Fred Shuttlesworth is there and he arrests him. He demands to know why. And he said, you know, he's going to arrest all these freedom riders. Um he takes the Freedom Riders into protective custody. They're singing their the, they're singing their tails off. I don't know what you say. They're like in the jail, just singing, 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 and uh, that annoys, of course, all everybody. Kennedy's now put in this dilemma because, God, what am I supposed to do? I thought this was resolved. I just had them flown out to New Orleans. Now I have them all in in jail. Branch says. This dilemma was a humbling demonstration of the race issue, and it was mystifying um, of this unconventional power of these handful of faceless and nameless half-suicidal pacifists 
to see his attention by a simple act of riding a bus. Kennedy's also embarrassed by the Bay of Pigs. So this racial strife is just like causing more problems. And it's like an epicenter of embarrassment when he's also trying to have this relationship or dialogue with Khrushchev. It, this is one of the kind of the, the word mystifying is really interesting here because do you think it's because he's from the north or something like he doesn't understand it or? no I, I don't think it's that I, I, I don't think he's saying so if you've just like spent your life working your way up from a wealthy family into the congress into the senate you successfully become president you're preparing to meet Nikita Khrushchev and negotiate about war and peace and suddenly these uh, pacifist Christian uh, Gandhian uh, people are are changing your agenda. Right. It's, it's mind, remarkable. It's mind blowing. It it's a really remarkable lesson for anyone who wants to think about making change about how the right action in the right place and time can change the agenda. Those 11 of, people or nine people on the bus right. were, I don't want to say they're nobodies because they're heroes to me, but they were not elected to anything. No, they're they were just, not. <laughs> they, you know, they don't, they're students. They don't eat, some of them are just retired. They're just like regular people. And all of a sudden they're on national news and world news. Right. And, and, and forcing governors and presidents to react. So all this back and forth between Kennedy, White, Patterson, White's a character in the Kennedy administration, figure out what to do with these jailed freedom riders was uh what was I gonna say they they come up with a plan. And that plan to me sounds crazy. And that is to have Bull Connor take them out of jail and take them to Tennessee. I I mean I would not trust that man at all. But so that's what the plan is. So Connor says, um, you know, we'll drop them off at uh, the Tennessee line. So he takes them at nighttime, they drive all the way up to Ardmore, Tennessee right at the border. Like it's like night, there's nothing going on. So there you are. Here's your suitcase. Are you in clan country? What's going on? So they get out. They're exhausted. They're starving. I would have been horrible in this situation. I think probably gotta go to the bathroom. I need thirsty water. They need to find shelter. So they're, they're looking for a home with a black person. Hopefully they don't run across uh, a Klansman. They find one after morning light. Did you read that too? Like, I remember thinking like, my God, that's all night. They're just wandering around in the countryside. They find this elderly couple. Thank God, uh, an older black family. And they're like, "Uh uh-uh, you ain't coming in here. (laughs) Who are you people? They didn't realize that, you know, these people were really backwoods. Maybe that's the wrong term, but they weren't the most up to date on what's going on. They finally, after persistence, realize okay, these are good people. We're going to let them in. Um, they're, you know, kind of country folk. Now, I, I, I read this slightly differently. They're country people, but everybody in black America knows what freedom writers are at this point, and they're terrified of them. They're terrified about what's going to happen to them if they bring the freedom writers into their house. Eventually, they decide to do it. But there's this piece that comes afterwards where the man who owns the house goes out to buy them breakfast. Yeah, that he buys them eggs and bologna. But he goes to multiple stores. And, he yeah. go, the reason he's going to multiple stores, I think, yes. is so that no white store owner asks, why are you suddenly buying two dozen eggs for you and your right, wife? Right, right. That, like, that level of fear, that, that, that little illustration, I, I bought two dozen eggs today, and I bought it at one store. 
I, I, it didn't occur to me mm-hmm. that anybody might wonder if I was hiding right. some uh, agitators at my house because I bought two dozen eggs. It, it, that kind of granular detail. Yeah, no, that, that this is great. That, cool. That I, I guess me. I guess I the yeah I, I probably extrapolated because Branch says like they didn't know much about the world or something. He said, but they probably were fearful of radicals or something like that. And yeah, so he he goes and bringing and, trouble down on them. And then he. He ends up really warming up to them. He says this jittery couple warms up to them. That he buys eggs and bologna at different mercs, and so they wouldn't tell that he's harboring these these folks. Um, so they call Nash and explain. You know, we're really tired. Oh, it's just been all night. You know, wandering around in Tennessee. Finally, we got um, you know some food, and we're here just to let you know. And um. <laughs> Diane Nash, like, okay, well, you head back down. It's like uh, this is okay. Maybe my love for Diane Nash is a little bit like, can they, can they just take a bath and take call this one off? So they don't even really answer it at first, and then John Lewis calls. It's like, okay, we've eaten some food, we've had some eggs and bologna and a cup of coffee. We're ready to go. We're ready to do it again. So this guy, Leo Lillard, would be the volunteer driver. This is who I would be. <laughs> Here's why I like this. This is my character. Taking a little bit of risk, but he's like not fully in. And he's got like an assignment that it's like important. So Leo, so Nash like, I'm going to send Paul Cooley down. Leo, Leo Lillard. So Leo drives down. He picks up the passengers and they all like uh, seven of them, seven or eight of them. And they're all in this, the cars are bigger back then, so they're in the back and in the front. And as they get close, they're like, oh, wait a second, we got to we gotta make sure no one can see us. There's some, uh, how does he write it? He goes, there's, they become a pile of sweaty apprehension because they wind up the windows and they all are soon laying on top of each other on the back floor and kind of in the back of the, what does he say, the, the floorboards of the car. Leo's taking side roads. Um, and he, have you ever, like, could you imagine being piled up on a bunch of people like that? Have you ever had that experience? Being piled up with three or four people? I mean, <laughs> but the not, not for a long period of time. I mean, I, like, this is like, you start to wonder, like, what am I doing here? I got three people. Maybe I know them. Maybe I don't. We're all, like, smothered close to each other. The sweaty bodies. It's not in a sexual way at all. We might be murdered in the next couple hours. So they finally get to Shuttleworth's house. And it's like a hero's welcome. Uh, they, Ruby Doris Smith of Spielman's there. They have some sandwiches. They do some prayers. And then, all right, let's get going. Got to go down to the Greyhound station to get to Montgomery. They're hanging there. They're just like singing songs. Uh, Lewis is giving, pre- he's preaching. Other people are, are giving sermons. There's skeptics by. There's like policemen are actually protecting the area. Um, white youth are kind of throwing rocks over the policemen. Uh, Washington, you know, Kennedy administration is trying to reach Patterson to try to figure out a plan for this. And... Who's hiding from the president. It, the, yeah, he's hiding from the president and the first time he says, uh, when he tries to reach Patterson, I actually believed it. <laughs> I was like, oh, he's out fishing. I'm like an idiot. And it's like, he. and then the second time, Branch is like, he couldn't lie the second time. So he just said like, he can't be reached. Or he doesn't want to talk or something. John Siegenthaler made his way back up, and he's there 
uh, believe it or not, meeting with Door. Is this right? Am I getting this right? Hold on. Um, no, sorry. I'm just going. I'm jumping ahead. John Siegenthaler meets with Patterson in his cabinet, and this is where Patterson uses. This is the governor. He uses racial epithets. He says, um, "You know, the voters want me to do what I'm doing. They don't like King. These are rabble rousers. You know, uh, I'm extremely popular here." And, and Branch kind of says he might be doing this like kind of thing more to for his cabinet to kind of say like, you know, I'm strong on segregation. Um, Stick, sticking it to the federal government, sticking it to standing the f- up for the good people of Alabama. Yep. Um, so the bus driver is this guy, Kavanaugh, Kavanaugh. He's like, listen, uh, I only got one life to live here. And um, I'm out. I'm not giving it to Snick, and I'm not giving it to Gore. And he leaves. So Kennedy's on the phone with Greyhound. He tries to get another bus driver. Long story short, they get the same guy to come back in. You better get Mr. Greyhound on the phone. Yeah, you better get Mr. Yeah, I think he said that, doesn't he? <laughs> right. Or something like that. It's actually kind of funny. Um, so Siegenthaler is finishing breakfast in Montgomery with none other than John Doerr, which is kind of funny. So... They get on the bus, head down to Montgomery, and... <laughs> this is when the bus is going like 90 miles an hour to keep ahead of the clan cars. Yes. So they get off. John Lewis is selected to kind of speak and step off the bus. There's like a semicircle of reporters. He's feeling this is kind of a strange situation. He whispered to his companion, like, I don't like how this feels. It's like there's some like white folks hiding in the bushes and stuff like that. The only people he can see are some people like again hiding around the terminal. He sees a battery of cameras and microphones and notepad. Lewis got halfway through one of his answers to the first question before just looking out at the reporters and feeling freaked out. Um and then he sees like a ton of men standing in the doorway of the terminal kind of steps back and then he sees all these like baseball bats lead pipes push past him and they actually attack the new the press an nbc news guy gets attacked uh the freedom riders start backing up to the loading zone a life photographer was repeatedly beaten in the face with his own camera um this guy uh, norman ritter gets beaten to the ground he's another reporter other whites like kind of below this other like observate like other area they're kind of closing in them from all sides like breaks loose they just kind of come at all the freedom riders and like there's a branch quotes like a woman yelling get those n-words just unbelievable there's a negro taxi that goes by some of them get in there like a bunch of them actually um four or five black people jump in the back seat they get away uh there's no time really to do anything this is just like mayhem susan wilbur uh she gets attacked Uh, jim zerwig really gets beat up hard and they knocked his teeth out his face had blood coming down um a few of the adults on the perimeter put their children on the shoulders this is like white people watching this happen Mm. this is one of the most disturbing things in the entire book not the people getting beat up which is equally disturbing but this girl says to her dad what are they doing down there, Dad? And the dad says, um, they're really having a go at it or something to that effect. And so 
people are getting beat up lead pipes or out or pipes and stuff like that Siegenthal is there but one of the things that's remarkable about him is when Susan Wilbur who's like a white woman he tries to save her and she's like being chased by women actually that are like throwing like their pocketbooks at him or something like beating her in a teenager a teenager's like like kind of trying to like punch her and he tries to rescue her and she's like she says as she's like getting attacked she's like um you're you know this isn't your fight man you're gonna get killed you need to get out of here like who would do that i certainly wouldn't i'd be like let me get in the car um uh the crowd is just like kicking like unconscious bodies they actually kick his body under the car and let's see after hitting him in the head after hitting him in the head john lewis is unconscious william barbie is unconscious uh zerwig's unconscious they're all just kind of laying there uh siegenthor said he's unconscious um siegenthor eventually gets up and he's all bloody doesn't know what's going on one of the police officers around says hey buddy looks like you got in trouble and he's like who are you and he's like wait what's going on he's like yeah i'm i'm a i'm one of kennedy's assistants you know um at the end of this chapter there's this line from uh jim zerwig they're you know they're all like in recuperating in in uh the hospital or at uh shuttleworth's house and it's well we're going to continue to do it and we're all prepared to die <laughs> like unbelievable i mean this is uh Oh, just not a fun episode to talk about. Really, it was like exciting to read, and we let's let's try to end on a positive note here. So here's here's what I want to say. These people are freaking amazing, and there should be statues to them all over America, um, because uh, I think I've said this before. But one of the things about reading this is like it's making me oddly like kind of patriotic. I don't know why that is, but it just like feels cool. It's like these are people who are part of this country. These are the fabric that makes our country a little uh, much better than it is years ago. It was because when we talk about people that have fought and died or got close to death and got battle wounds, it's because of these people. And uh, it's remarkable and very inspiring and I don't want to say heartwarming to hear that they got all this violence done to them. But it's like I, there's no way I would have done this. There's a lot to think about here. That I want to come back to that, but can I offer two other things? Yeah, sure. Reflecting on these scenes. I mean, I already said something about the the place in Birmingham, but the place in Montgomery are 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 the same. They're colluding with the Klan. Uh, they're lying about it. They're using the power of the state to help fascists uh, commit mass violence. The the point about the woman who's egging on the Klansman and the father talking mm-hmm. to his, his little girl. It makes me think about some of the research that I've read and read about recently about the Klan in Indiana in the 20s and also even more recently about the white power movement. Uh, and in both cases, in the, in the 70s and 80s, in both cases about the role of women and that this, this research points out that both in the Klan in Indiana and then the white power movement much more recently in different parts of the country, that women play a really important role in the sort of social reproduction of white supremacy and white power. They're not innocent. <laughs> that just, li- just like the role of yeah. women has been uh, an, an, an undertold part of the history of the yes. black freedom struggle and the labor movement, the role of women as leaders 
uh, standing up for uh, white power and white supremacy mm. uh, is also incredibly important to holding the whole project, the whole ideological and political and social project together. This is kind of really overt example of that. Yes, yes. And the the, the father sort of explaining this to his daughter uh, is is yet another echo of it, right? That now. I also think that what happens with Siegenthaler here is unbelievably important, right? That to have um, a public official, to have a, um, a a new frontiersman, right? One of the the Kennedy inner circle uh, agents and representatives who happens to be on the scene because he's doing his job. He's a decent human being, so he steps out. After explaining what's going on over the phone, he goes out to try to help this young woman, freedom rider, who's being attacked, and then he gets his head uh, knocked in. Yeah, I mean, you'd think he could—that's something you could die from, and right. it's like. But it's also one of these moments where I think the the policemen who sort of encounter him when he's like first becoming conscious suddenly realize, oh, we have a much bigger problem this is a here big deal. than we thought. That if there really is someone who works for the attorney general whose blood is on the ground then this is not something which is going to go away, which is, of course, an important part of the story. But, look, what you said about, I think, is uh, we are prepared to die, it, it's, for me, it's one of those moments, I, I felt the same way as you, Paul, that you ask yourself, what would you do in this time? What would you do in this place? Would you be prepared to take this risk? Um, and... Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think, actually to examine myself a little bit more i think maybe at that age i might have been a little more of a like yeah but like like right now i just think like this is dangerous this is scary you know there's right. the, there's the naivete of youth but my god the 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 courage and just the not fighting back right and like like just this commitment to non-violence and just saying like nope and then the oh, it is like the worst of it's like the it's like simultaneously the worst and the best of humanity. Yes, that like I, I was I was just thinking the same thing <laughs> that between the the woman egging on the Klansman and Siegenthaler and then Zwerg picking up the pieces of his teeth, right? Uh, and Please do not save me here. I have to get beaten to prove that this is wrong, right. And to make a mark, this is why I'm here. I'm offering and up my body. And I don't want body. you to be at risk. And I don't want this you to be at risk. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Please, this is we are she doing this. She wasn't wrong. It turns out, right? You didn't go to the trainings like I have, right? Um. So I, this was harder to do than I thought. I thought it was going to be funner, more fun. Well, it's too. Uh, I don't like all the violence. I don't like the violence either. But he, here's the part of it that I, I do find uplifting. And I was thinking about this in a very different context. It's the. It happens to be the 85th anniversary when I was reading this of um, the Battle of Harama in the Spanish Civil War. And think, <laughs> okay, uh, where are you going? Here's the connection I'm making. Okay, you know, just reading about ordinary people taking unbelievable risks to stand up for something they believed in, right? And in that case, it was people who were you know, butchers and, you know, I was just reading about this Danish butcher and his brother who was a construction worker and they are in this incredible fight mm -hmm. uh, where the history of the world is turning. And in this situation, you have these people who are just like right. you and me and anybody right. else uh, who have bodies that they would like to keep intact. <laughs> right. And yet they are doing this thing that will change the course of, of their country. Yeah, I mean, what I like and find most interesting is the 
nuts and bolts of the, I guess, pre-action and, yes. and how it comes to. When you get to the actual action, other than like the scene where, you know, one of my favorite scenes so far is when, Di- this is a couple episodes ago, is when Diane Nash is in jail and 40 people go through, they're all arrested for, mm-hmm. and they say, hey, I'm going to pay my fine. And then she says, you know, no, I'm not paying my fine. This is an unjust law. And turns over, everyone else changes their mind. Like, I love stuff like that. But the violence thing, I'm not so much into. Um, or just this, it's just, uh, it, I want to go on a tangent about who are these people. And yeah, I guess we could get into the psychos, like the psychology of this. And this has happened in all in world history. Uh, and nobody wants to hear us talk about that, really. <laughs> and, and in the face of that, people are capable of this kind of courage that can change the agenda of a great nation's politics. And that's, that, that's the part of it that I find hopeful, right? In the same, and, and that's the connection I was making to the, the example of the people who went to fight in Spain, that quite ordinary people can put themselves in a situation that can be profoundly meaningful. Um, and that ordinary people can do that. That, that, that makes me feel... Like what I do matters, or what mm-hmm. you do matters, right? Like that's that's the part of it that is um, important to take out of these stories. And that's and that's also why I like that. Although this is the king years, that these were the people who were taking the risk. These were the people who were taking leadership in this moment, and um, Branch is is giving them center stage. Do, do you feel like so? I, I have this like interest in what happens to these people years later that's not in Branch's book. So like Sullivan, I look him up. He ends up voting for Obama later on. And I guess we could say that's a good thing. He's no longer a segregationist or maybe he was always just a politician. Um, I end up looking up his son too. <laughs> like what his son just becomes like a state trooper or something like that and uh, you know, just lives a normal life or whatever. Um, so maybe that's a, a, a point where we could say there's some hope. I don't know. Um, any any other thoughts on this grisly, harrowing, horrifying thing? Well, without getting too much into what comes next, because we got more freedom rides, right? That that Diane Nash spirit that says we're going in again. We're we're not going to let this be stopped by violence. We're not going to turn back. We're going to go back into the. In, into the struggle, into the teeth of it. I, I think that's what people have to be prepared to do if they want to take on huge systems of, of power and coercion. It, it's, uh, it, it just seems like, I mean, that's, it's, it's both too much to ask, mm-hmm. and yet it's also the only kind of realism that makes sense when you're taking on a, a, a struggle like this. So we're a little bit off subject with reading Parting the Waters now because like, we're not talking about what branch wrote but just looking forward i'm just thinking how this movement so far what we have read from branch is we essentially have for the most part a loose but unified civil rights kind of movement and there hasn't been really any sharp disagreement among tactics and things like that and i'm not sure we're actually going to get to that because the book goes only goes till 1963 but, um, I mean, I, we definitely know in the later 60s there's different ideas about how, uh, you know, black equality and fighting for racial justice should occur. Um, 
But it does seem that they are with the disunity speech that you know King gave that there is this sort of nice cohesion. NAAC legal avenue, the students now taking more direct action. King doing the pastor, you know, him and his role as like a spokes leader person. I don't know how you would say it. Um, I, I don't think there's really much disunity. Is that well? There's certainly tension, and there and there are different generations, and there's different views. You know, um, we we know that Thurgood Marshall looks askance and and talks down what King is trying to do. You know, Daddy King is being challenged by the the militant young youth in Atlanta. But these things do seem at this point in the movement to, um, if not exactly by design, to be complementary in some ways. Yes, exactly. One of the things that I think that um, Branch draws out by going into detail about the early Kennedy administration legal maneuvers, all, all of the details that we didn't talk that much about, about what it actually takes to set up a civil rights lawsuit in the South when, in fact, you have these terrible precedents. Um, it's really important work. Mm-hmm. And then it's going to be, but the political and social reality is going to be lurched forward by the actions of people yes. uh, in, in the Freedom Rides. Right. So I, I don't think you can say, well, the legal work is not important or not significant, right? Uh, just like political work is. Oh, of course. Right? Yeah, yeah. And yet, without this creative nonviolent direct action, what you're calling aggressive uh, nonviolence, you also can accomplish the change that you need to make as quickly as you can. Right. All right. Well, thanks everybody for listening and uh, stay with us. We will be continuing on.